0: Amen. Thank you, Natalie. Good morning, everybody. Once again, um, as was just alluded to, that sickness has been going through my house and my body all the same. So I'll need your attentive listening. And probably if I start hacking up, someone else to come up and finish the sermon for me, which would be fine. Um, Because the word is the Lord's, not mine. Amen? So let's read from John chapter 5. We're continuing as we will all year in John chapter 5. Anyone notice a problem even before we start real quick? We skipped, in large part, the last part of John chapter 4, which is insane because we're spending a whole year in the book of John and we still can't cover it all. That seems unreasonable. It seems like he wrote too much or maybe we're too wordy and need to move more quickly. All right, here we go. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We're just going to read the first part of it and then take a quick break. Everyone there, open your Bibles, got your phones out. Here we go. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda. Some of you have maybe read it as Bethsaida at some point, but it's called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? So let's pause there for a second. And I want us to go to a map of Israel... Uh, as it would have been something like at this time, and talk about John, just to get some framework for what's been happening so far. Now, I've got this uh, scribbled down thing of notes for me, but it's very confusing. In all of the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is born, you hear his birth narrative, he goes to Egypt with his parents, and then he comes back. John sets things up a little different. John chapter 1, you may remember this theological discourse about who Jesus is. Is And then you get some of John the Baptist, as the other Gospels talk about. It's not until chapter 2 that Jesus shows up on the scene at all. And he is right east of Jericho. So if you look in the bottom right corner of this map, east of that river is probably somewhere about where John the Baptist would have been baptizing and where Jesus is found first in this particular book. He pretty quickly goes all the way up to Galilee, Galilee is that region in the top. You see Capernaum, Cana, Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. Jesus spent a lot of his youth in Capernaum. The first miracle that we see in the gospel, the first sign, which is a distinction we'll talk about in just a moment, happens in Cana. So Jesus, in chapter 2, is down by Jericho. He walks all the way up to Galilee. It's about 90 miles. And then he walks west, probably from where the Sea of Galilee is, that body of water, to Cana. Then, where does he go? He goes all the way down back to... Uh, oh, where's my map? Where am I, where am I at? Oh, it goes back to Capernaum, and then he goes back to Jerusalem. So he goes from Cana back to Capernaum, and then all the way back down to Jerusalem, another 90 or so miles on foot. And in Jerusalem, that's when he flips the tables, and you get that fun story that we heard about. And then from Jerusalem, he goes back east towards where Jericho is, probably a little north of Jericho this time, another spot where John the Baptist was baptizing. And then he goes to Sychar in Samaria, where we get the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And then he goes back up to Galilee, back by the sea. And then he goes back to Cana. And then that miracle with uh, the end of chapter 4, which is a, a, a a Roman official's son getting healed, actually takes place in Capernaum while Jesus is still in Cana. But Jesus does go back to that part of Galilee. You tracking all this? Does this make any sense? And then he goes all the way back down to, where does this story take place? Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind, even though it's going south, we would never say you go up when you're going south. But you always say you're going up to Jerusalem just because it's the mountain of God. So he goes up to Jerusalem. I just wanted to do this frustrating exercise to point out how strange John's gospel is. Because in the span of three chapters, Jesus goes down, up, down, up, back down. He walks about 400 miles. And he does like three things. All right, great. <laughs> So that's one framing mechanism. As we learn John, I just want us to pay attention to this because it's unique amongst the Gospels in the way that it tells the story. Now, the other Gospels, Jesus stays in Galilee for the entire time and then only at the end of the book, he goes down to Jerusalem once. We're already in Jerusalem a second time here in the fifth chapter. The second thing that's unique about John is he doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word signs. Something happened on my phone. Siri did something to my phone while it was in my pocket. (laughs) started a podcast or something. The other Gospels use this word miracles, but let's go to this word signs. And this story here is the third sign. We'll finish reading the story in a second. The first sign that we saw was the changing of the water into wine at Cana. The second sign we didn't actually see, we skipped over it. It It's the healing of the royal official's son in Capernaum. Just real briefly, let's turn to chapter 4 and let's see what happens. Jesus left for Galilee and is uh, pointing out that he doesn't receive honor in his hometown. And he visits Cana again, and a Roman official heard that Jesus was there. He says, Unless you people see miraculous signs, that is Jesus, and wonders, you'll never believe. But the royal official who had come to see him to beg that his son would be healed, because he had heard that Jesus laid his hands on the sick and they were made well, said, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus replied, You may go. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, The fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time which Jesus said to him, "Your son will live." So he and all his household believed. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. So that's the second sign, the healing of the royal official son in Capernaum. The third sign, healing the paralytic at Bethesda, we'll get to. The question, though, is why does John use this language of signs instead of, like the other Gospels, just using this language of miracles? Well, my proposal is basically this: Jesus wants, in the, uh, in, the in the story with Nicodemus in chapter three, for Nicodemus to understand heavenly things. You remember this? Jesus says to Nicodemus, who doesn't understand the second birth thing, he says, I'm speaking to you of earthly things and you don't understand. How can I speak to you of heavenly things if you can't understand these meager earthly things? So it is with signs. What John, the gospel author, is doing by using this simple word is saying each and every one of these miracles that you see is in fact an earthly thing. And it's a really good earthly thing. It's a really remarkable earthly thing wine from water, sick to health. These are immensely rare, impossible things, and yet they're pointing to something even beyond. They're pointing to something even greater. They're pointing to something that is actually heavenly. The signs themselves are good. What the signs communicate is great. And I think they give us a few questions that are valuable to ask. Right, And so let's take these one by one. If they are pointing to something greater, the first question we need to ask of each, each sign is this. What does this show us about heaven? What does this sign reveal to us about the nature of the kingdom of God? We can go to these lists of questions, Cindy. For the wedding at Cana, that first Answer might be something about joy, something about abundance that is natural, that is true of the kingdom of God and the ministry that Christ is doing. For the healing of the official son, notice how Jesus doesn't have to even go to Capernaum. He can just speak the word in Cana, and it happens. So there's something about the power of God's word that is being revealed in this sign. What does this reveal to us about who Jesus is? Well, the flat answer for all of these is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is. The Messiah. But especially at the wedding, you can see this thing about the ministry of Jesus that he is the one who brings joy. In this healing of the official son, he is the one who is the Christ and his word. His word is enough. We don't actually even need to see signs. He criticizes them for demanding signs and wonders. All we need is his word, and we can believe and we can trust. There's something revealed to us about who Christ is. And there's this third question, which is a little different, because the Bible doesn't necessarily answer it for us, or even give us that many clues about how it will apply. But what is this inviting us out of, and then subsequently towards? Again, the wedding at Cana, when there was no wine, it invites us out of despair, out of drought, out of lack, and into abundance, and into rejoicing, and into celebration, and in this story of chapter 4, the healing of the official son, were invited out of unbelief, out of desperation. Think of how far that father had to go. Capernaum to Cana is not nearly as long as Capernaum to Jerusalem, but it's a pretty hefty walk. Right? Imagine walking, I don't know, to Castle Rock from here. Right? Because you heard a rumor about a guy of a different religion who cool stuff was happening through. And you had enough desperation to go but out of desperation and into faith, into trust and belief. And so what is the sign? What is this story? I want to read this story. We'll read the whole thing through now, get our ears attentive. And I want to propose to you that the story is not primarily a healing story. It is a healing story. But it's not about whether or not Jesus can heal. We already know that. It's about something greater. It's about something deeper. It's about something more challenging, in fact. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Pause real quick. Bethesda. Everybody say, bait. Bait House. Pretty straightforward, right? Can any of you it a house right now in this market? Uh-uh. Thank you, you're welcome. it, house. Say chesed. chesed. Anyone remember what chesed means? It's a word we use a lot around here. The steadfast love of the Lord. Sometimes it means grace. Sometimes it's used as mercy. It's this pretty broad word used to describe God's compassion in his powerful compassion, in his enduring compassion, his love. Say, Bait. Chesed. Say, Chesda. <laughs> Is that good? Was that clean? <laughs> Bethesda. What does it mean? The house of God's steadfast love. The house of mercy. The house of grace. And it sets this stage. What's interesting about this place, right, this house of mercy, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. <clears throat> One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? What is this pool, these covered colonnades, this house of mercy, flooded with, surrounded with? Sick people people, downtrodden people. There's an argument, I don't actually buy it, I don't believe it, um, that in Aramaic the language might translate actually to shame. Instead of chesed, there's a different word that maybe this name Bethesda comes from that has more to do with shame, right? And despair than mercy and in grace. I don't actually quite buy the etymology, but you can see the connection, right? This place that ought to be a place of mercy is now actually a place where people carry Their deepest shame, their deepest insecurities out openly, right? And are actually competing with one another to see who could get healed. As the story goes on, Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And John doesn't quite explain it. The other gospels articulate that the people believed that there was an angel that would come and would stir the water. And the first person into the water would get cured of whatever their ailment was. John doesn't say as much, but we know from the other Gospels this thing. And so set this stage for yourself. This house of mercy is actually a race for who amongst the crippled is the least crippled. Think of how that stacks shame. You see that? One who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Do you want to get well, Jesus asked him. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Thirty-eight years. Then Jesus said to him, get up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Pick up your mat and walk. Hear that. Hear that. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, rolled it up, and he walked. I told you we'd finish the story. I keep getting stopped. (laughs) I just want to look at Jesus for a second and point out how beautiful this question is. (laughs) Do you want to get well? It's an obvious answer, right? It's not a hard question, but it is a little bit more nuanced than that could Jesus have come and in his mighty power right like you imagine the way Superman floats you know come and touched the man or he could have said in a loud voice you there be healed he doesn't he comes to the man and it actually says when Jesus saw him lying there and learned what does that communicate about Jesus he did some research He asked about him. He saw someone and he had compassion on him. And he respected him enough to learn about him before he just approached him. He learned and he asked him a question. Do you want to get well? And in such a simple question, he gives the man willpower. He gives the man agency. He gives the man respect. He doesn't come in and enforce his healing as obvious as you would think he would want it on it. But he looks at the man who has been crippled an invalid, for 38 years, and he says, hey, you're in charge. Do you want to get well? I think that's important for us as Christians. I pray that healing miracles happen in abundance in this community and then flowing out of this community into this city, but I'm reminded of a good friend of mine in, uh, when I lived in San Diego in Southern California who I would have long conversations with, and he um, he had a injury that caused a brain injury that caused him to not be able to walk anymore on his own power, though he worked very hard in order to do that and could go short distances. and he also could only talk very slowly. So his brain worked very quickly, like any anyone of ours would, except the way he could vocalize was very slow. And Growing up in an area that was largely Christian, right by a Christian university, he had people pray for his healing all the time and he would really humble himself to receive those sorts of prayers and he never got healed and he got sick of it because these young, zealous kids who saw the healing power of God would come and be like, hey, God can heal you if you have enough faith. Why am I not better, right, He would ask. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus approaches the man, and he asks him a very simple question. He says, do you want to get well? And what does that do? I'll say it again. It gives the man agency. It gives the man sense of responsibility. It gives the man ownership of this body that Christ has given him to take care of. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool. Does he say, yes, I do want to get well? Not exactly. (laughs) What does he say? Repeat these words after me. I have no one. What's he sick from? What's his ailment? Is it his legs? Is that what he says right off the bat? Hmm. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am trying, hear that? (laughs) While I'm trying, someone else goes down ahead of me. Here's a man who's alone. Here's a man who is stuck right where he is, immobile. Think of all that means, right? Think of all that means. I want to go to the bathroom. What do I have to do, right? I want to get food. What do I have to do? He's immobile. He's alone. He's old. If he's been this way for 38 years, at the very least, he's 40, right? Right? And in that culture, in that era, that's a pretty significant age. I know some of you are laughing at me right now. (laughs) But he's an old man who's alone, who's immobile, and he's in an environment, like I said before, where these disabled people who are all probably feeling lonely and in need and desperate are actually put to pit against each other in competition to see who can get better quickest, right? He's not the fastest, he's the worst of the worst. Do you want to get well? Get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man had no idea who it was who healed him. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. We'll finally finish the story. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away, and he told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't that funny, that interaction with the Jewish leaders, right? All right, everybody, say these words with me. Shabbat. Shabbat. Shalom. Shalom. Familiar with these words? Yep. Two of the most famous words on the planet. Any language. Any language. Shabbat is the Sabbath, right? God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, after everything was completed, he rested. Shalom. Shalom is peace, but it's more than peace. It's just wholeness generally, not just wholeness. It's, it's wholeness. It's everything in its right place. It's good and it's perfect order, not just the absence of warfare, of course, but everything whole and right. Shabbat. Say it with me. Shabbat. Shalom. Was the man, when he was lying down on his mat, unable to move, alone, experiencing rest? Was he experiencing peace? When he picked up his mat and when he walked, for the first time in his life, Shabbat Shalom was a lived reality in his body. And as soon as the religious leaders, as soon as these people who had a religiously skewed, worldly worldview looked at him, what did they see happening? Work. Work. Isn't that weird? Isn't that funny? How when God does something that empowers you and enables you to do something great, the world looks at you and says, why are you working so hard? And you're like, for the first time in my life, I'm experiencing peace. The man, according to the letter of the law, was actually... Arguably the best follower of Sabbath regulations the world had ever seen. He couldn't do anything. (laughs) Did he have peace? Did he have rest? But the word of the Lord comes and the joy of the Lord comes and speaks to him to enable him to become that which he wholly was intended to be. And I want to actually go all the way back and look a little bit more carefully, just because I think this is actually central to what the story is about. The story is largely about rest, which is why Sabbath is such a big deal. It's about rest as it relates to agency, as it relates to personal power and responsibility. When God creates the world, he creates the light, right, and he separates the waters, and he separates the waters again this direction so that the land emerges, and then he creates the plants and the things that grow in the ground, and he tells them to do something. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. He tells them to, to reproduce according to their kind. And when he, does the, when, when he, when he creates the, um, the stars and the, the moon and the sun, he actually gives them responsibility too. He says the sun is responsible to govern the day and the moon is responsible to govern the night. He creates the uh, birds of the air and the fish of the sea and he tells them the same thing as the plants. Reproduce, right? Grow. Swim quickly, right? according to your own kind, and then he creates the animals and the humans. And With all of the animals, he says that phrase again, be fruitful, multiply, and then he tells the people, you are supposed to have dominion, to be responsible for, to steward all of creation. You're made in my image to be creative, to be powerful, to be impactful, to be these sorts of things. And then on the seventh day, he rested from all his work for everything was done. When does the Sabbath end? In the creation story. It's kind of a trick question. <laughs> At sin, <laughs> it doesn't say it ever ends. goes on and on and on and on and on, right? Did the plants follow his word? <laughs> yeah, did the animals follow his word? Did the sea creatures and the birds of the air follow his word and continue to do these things that they were designed to do? To recreate, to swim, to fly, to run, to jump, to climb, right? Sabbath, according to Genesis 1 and 2, is not the absence of what we might call work. In fact, it's living into the right labor and the right responsibilities. It's the absence of toil, for sure. But it's an, actual, it's, it's an action day. It's a certain type of action day. It's a certain type of action that is oriented with wholeness and with rest, knowing that the creative work of God is complete in you. The law gives the the, the regulations for the Sabbath. And the first one says, do this because on the seventh day God rested. Therefore, you also ought to rest. The second time in Deuteronomy, it gives this law of the Sabbath. You get the Ten Commandments, but the Sabbath one's a little different. It says, on the seventh day, remember the Sabbath because you were slaves in Egypt. And so every one of you, all of your animals, and any servant in your community ought not to do work on this day to remember that you once were slaves and you no longer are. So there's this idea that we don't do slave labor, we don't do these sorts of things, but we rest because we are all part of this now complete, whole family picture. Let's go back to our man lying at the side of the pool. He was not doing any work because he couldn't because he was immobile. Was he resting? No. Was he whole? No. In fact, was he enslaved? Yes. Yes. The religious leaders actually wanted to re-enslave him by keeping him from doing the work of God according to the word of Jesus Christ. Do you see our setting? So what's this story about? Well, it's about rest. It's about what real rest looks like. And this is not in the story at all. This is pretty assumptive. But I think there's a character trait that's important for us to look at in this man and especially look inwardly as it might relate to us as individuals and to us as a community. What else can we say about the man beside the pool? The end of chapter four, there's a father Who has a son who is sick, and he hears a rumor of a hint of a possibility that his son might get well. And he races off and he fights through crowds to find this man and says, Even if you just speak a word, give me something. This man, 38 years an invalid, I am alone. I have no one to help me. Where were his parents? Where were his parents? I don't know. It's a question the text itself doesn't ask. But I see in here a man who is spiritually an orphan. And I want to talk about spiritual orphanage just real briefly. Because this man, though he is old, is alone. What does it mean to be an orphan? Well, what does it mean to grow old? And think of the way that you wish yourself, right, maybe could do your whole life again. Maybe you didn't have people to support you. Maybe you didn't have wise elders and counsel around you. And so you've lived your whole life making decisions that even though you didn't know better at the time, now you kind of regret. And now you're 40 years old or however old this guy is, 65, 75 years old, 95 years old exactly 38 years old, maybe you're still only 15 years old, I don't know, and you're saying, man, I'm full of regret. I'm full of shame. And actually, my mind, even though I have all of these years, because I've been stuck dealing with this thing that I've never been able to get past, I feel like I'm still trapped in the mind of a child. I feel like I'm hardened. I feel like I've grown bitter and callous, but I don't feel like I've grown mature. I don't feel like I've grown wise. I'm not proud of this person who I've become. And I'm stuck here all alone with myself who I don't like. And I'm going to use narcissism or I'm going to use anger or I'm going to use, you know, whatever tools that I have to kind of soften the sense that I'm alone, that I don't have parents who care for me, that I don't have family who I belong to. But here I am, a grown adult, spiritually an orphan, surrounded by other orphans, surrounded by other people who have no one to help, no one to guide, no one to give agency to. My life is disappointment. My life is could have been's. My life is measured against others, not measured against the word of someone who I trust. I'm going to raise my hand first and I'll say have any of you felt this way? You don't have to be so honest. Do you currently feel this way? In a room full of people yet largely alone, no one to help me through. I'm too old to actually live a life worth living. I've already missed my shot. I've already missed my chance. I feel it. I feel it. I'm in front of you, right? So you might be envious of this sort of pseudo position of, you know, grandeur that you look at. Got a microphone on. That's kind of cool. It's not hard for me to look back and say, man, I blew that. I don't belong anymore. My shot's over. But Jesus, he says, Do you want to get well? And he moves him from this spiritual orphan sense of regret, striving against other people in the world for some option at healing or opportunity at greatness. And he says, nope, get well. Get away from that. Pick up your mat. Walk away from here. Walk away from that. Walk away from that. And then at the end, he says these words to him. The man goes to the temple. Where else would he go? Of course, he's going to worship. Well, this man just got healed. And Jesus finds him there and he says, See, you are well again. I imagine he smiles at him, but who knows. He says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. (laughs) And at first glance, right, the first question Jesus asks, Do you want to get well? Seems like a dumb question. It's obvious. Of course he does. The second... set of phrases he uses, this statement, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. First reading you might think is like, wow, how rude. (laughs) Or what a strange thing to say, right? Like, oh, if he goes and, you know, drinks too much one night, right? Is he going to get struck by a meteor? Like, what's the situation Jesus is talking about? I'm unsure. It's beautiful, though, when you look a little more closely The first, most obvious, I think, interpretation that you can have. Stop sinning. Something worse may happen to you. Just has to do with this language of signs that John is using throughout his whole gospel. Hell is worse than being lame. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Amen. I would rather pluck my eye out, cut my hand off in the words of Jesus, than continue sinning and end up with my soul compromised. I'd so much rather have broken legs and know Christ, right? And not know Christ and be able to run super fast. Hell is worse than lameness. That's the first kind of obvious thing. But the second one, listen to this, takes Jesus' so few words. This man lives in a Jewish world. He understands this concept of sin. He understands this language. When Jesus says, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, He's talking about his future. Isn't that awesome? He's talking about his future. An old man whose life has amounted in his own interpretation we can assume to absolutely nothing has a future. His life has a purpose beyond just being healed. He wasn't just an agent of testimony to declare Christ's glory. He is that. But he himself has life to live. He can go on and now he has responsibility. Right? He has responsibility. I am not just going off and disappearing into the wilderness, but I am going to live a life of faithfulness. No longer sinning. And think about what sin means. The first three commandments. Back to the Ten Commandments are all very vertically oriented, right? The rest of them are about this. They're about how I relate to you and how you relate to me and how we relate to one another. To say stop sinning is to invite somebody to a life of community. To say stop sinning to a person who has been all alone for his whole life is to say, hey, You are going to belong to all of these people, and these people are going to belong to you. Treat each other well. Flourish with one another. Live according to the way of my word, according to heaven's nature itself. These are invitations, right, to a man who felt like an orphan, who was alone, who had no power in the world, right, who was stuck with a singular problem, Now, to see the world large, expanded, even of heavenly proportions, to have agency and power and calling, and to do it as a part of a people. This is an invitation for an orphan to a family. Just out of pure, sheer luck, I was in West Michigan. Uh, Not out of luck, I was in West Michigan. That was not lucky at all. But while I was in West Michigan, last weekend... I was having a conversation with some friends in a basement, and one of them is studying um, corporate psychology primarily, but he talked about Viktor Frankl, who is a Jewish um, psychologist, a Holocaust a psychiatrist, actually, a Holocaust survivor. And he was in these camps, right, Holocaust camps. I don't need to describe them to you. And he was observing some people who were in these camps and who still had this beautiful, strong sense of purpose And other people who had completely lost hope. And he pointed out three things. This is after I'd come up with these three things. He said, These are three things that you need for purpose. The first thing that you need for a life of purpose is a community that loves you. I wanna invite you all to share in a community of mutual love with one another. The second thing that you need for a life of purpose is a redemptive view of suffering. I know for a fact this man had a redemptive view of his suffering after the fact. That's why he went to the temple. That's why you are all gathered here. Because you have this redemptive view of suffering. And I hope that if you don't, you can start to. It's what the cross is about. And the third thing that you need is a project to work on. Stop sinning. That's my project for you live righteously some of you I don't know how long it's been for you maybe it's actually just today this morning where it started maybe you don't have this maybe it's been months for you maybe it's been years for you maybe it's even been decades for you have either emotionally internally spiritually or quite literally been sitting on your mat of ailment If we take this understanding of this story, now, I I need to make very clear, this story is not a story that says all of you are going to be healed. Remember, the colonnade was full of people who were healed. How many did Jesus choose to heal in this particular story? He only chose one. The story points towards something greater. This is not a story about whether or not you and your specific circumstance will get healed today, and we'll continue teaching on healing and praying full of faith and expectation for healing. But that's not what this story is about, not primarily. But this man's healing in context of heaven and hell, in context of purpose or hopelessness, in context of community or isolation, is a rather insignificant question. I have no one. God is inviting you right now off your mat and saying, pick it up, walk, pick it up, walk. Walk. I'm speaking to you, Jesus says, and I'm calling you to a life of following me, to a life of righteousness where we cast aside all of these sins and all of these half-baked, unsuccessful measures at health, right, at getting well, and I'm saying, regardless of the cost, follow me. Pick up your mat and walk. Pick up your mat and walk. Why aren't you doing it? Why are you still sitting there? Your ailment is so insignificant compared to what is and what can be, what my life in you looks like. I don't know what your mat is, and I don't know what your exact walk is, except that I know it'll look like Christ. The reason I was in Michigan last weekend, as an example, was a a good friend Uh, Named Paul uh, passed away very unexpectedly. His death happened in mid-December, and they waited for a long time for his actual funeral, which made it a lot easier to travel to, because some of that immediate trauma, you know, was at least partly dealt with, and it got to be a real celebration of his life, even in the midst of all of this grief. Paul was my sister's (laughs) father-in-law. Not necessarily the typical relation you travel across the country to go to the funeral of. But for this man, it was a reasonable exception. He ran the farm with them. Um, they shared children um, and foster and adopted nature with, one, with my sister and her family. And, and he was a good friend, too. In fact, he was a coach of mine growing up. He was a gym teacher of mine growing up. I played sports with one of his sons. Um, so I've known him for a, a very large portion of my life. And he passed away. Um, from leukemia. They diagnosed him and then within a week he was gone. Paul, uh, you, used to, uh, you used to be able to make a salary, a uh, living wage as a teacher. It <laughs> um, was pretty cool. Paul was a gym teacher and a coach his whole life and worked really hard and spent money on almost nothing. Was a not, not a believer though. Came to know Christ later. Um, and then even later in his life had some significant kind of reconversions or deeper conversions. And by the time he reached retirement age, he had owned, they owned a few houses in West Michigan and Holland. Um, they had three boys who were all grown and making money, and he had plenty to, to live off of and just enjoy his life with his wife. And they decided instead that they would start adopting. And over the course of the next uh, 15 or so years, Um, they adopted and fostered enough children that one of their children, um, a young man, stood up and gave a testimony of of his his dad, and he said, "Um, you know there's a lot of people in our family, uh, because if you ask any of the kids, they won't know how many there are. (laughs) They sold their really nice house. They sold their other house. They sold their other property in order to get a space that could accommodate some of these new people coming in, much, much less valuable. They invested in farm and in camps and in other sorts of things to create a a space for life for these people and for his children. And he probably spent maybe 2% of the money that he earned on he and his wife, and everything else went everywhere else. Sacrificed, sacrificed, sacrificed. Again, this is after retirement. He opened a lighting company, a manufacturing work, like a barn lighting company. Manufactured, sold, did all the accounting, traveled across the company or country to trade shows, that sort of things, to sell his lights. After he retired, while running a farm, while having a many dozen children. <laughs> the Pharisees said, Why are you working so hard? And Paul said, I'm finally at rest. (laughs) This is peace. To follow the call of Christ. To pick up my mat and walk. To know that even until my last days, I've got a purpose to show his love out into the world. So if you're the man beside the pool this morning... And I think I feel more like him. Let Jesus ask you, do you want to get well? Take seriously that question. Maybe your answer is just yes. Maybe your answer is I have no one. Maybe your answer is not really. Who knows? But I hope it's yes. Get up and walk away. From whatever that orphan spirit is is holding you down with? Or maybe some of you, do you know someone beside the pool? Do you know somebody right now who would answer, do you want to get well with, I have no one? I have no purpose, I have no capacity, I have no agency, I have no more life to live, and I've wasted all of my years before. Do you know that person? Can you go find them? Can you learn about them? Can you ask them, do you want to get well? And then lastly, as this season of fasting is underway, I do want to just remind you that fasting can be a great, 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 great gift in learning how to get up from our mat and our, our, our whatever it is that's, that's holding us down. And so if you're thinking, well, the thing that I need, my version of rolling into the pool to get well is, you know, whatever it is. I encourage you, continue fasting. Stay strong. If you haven't been fasting for this Lent season, start today, the very least tomorrow. And I want to pray for us. I'd invite the band up. We'll continue worshiping. I'll pray for us. I'll give a benediction. We've been having these extended times at the end of service, so we're going to continue worshiping after service, after benediction for the next little while, just as the Spirit leads us. I invite all of you to go out into the atrium, have another donut, grab some more coffee, say hi to friends. But if you need to receive prayer, if you want to confess something, personally, our prayer team is going to be up here and ready. Um, if you want to give prayer to somebody, if you've got a word to give to somebody, whatever it is, we're going to, we're going to spend a little extended time here tonight. We're going to pray as a community against this orphan spirit and for purpose refound in people. So, Father, we invite you and we thank you that we didn't need to because you're the one who showed up first. God, we invite you to pick us up. We invite you to speak words to us that call us to a life of peace and rest in work and in labor. And we thank you that we get to be a part of this family together, that not one of us, if we look around, can say fully, I have no one. God, but that you've put us in a room full of people who will care, who will help, who will give us belonging, who will pray, who will give, who will serve. And Jesus, just as the man Went to the temple to worship. And just as he went back to the Pharisees and told them proudly the name of the one who healed him, Lord, we're proud to bear your name this morning. And Lord, we know that it's you, no matter how many steps we walk, who deserves all the glory and all the praise and all the honor for giving us feet and legs that are good and strong and filling us with your Holy Spirit to continue on. Would your kingdom come? Would your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven? Would you stand to your feet? May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May he turn his face towards you and you're coming and you're going, just like the psalm that we read this morning. Would you know the comfort of his Holy Spirit deep in the depths of your soul and right on your fingertips and in your skin? So go, be at peace to love and to serve. We'll close the doors. The doors will be open for the next four or five minutes. As you exit out, we'll close them again as we continue to pray in about four or five minutes. Have a great day.